Well, hello everyone. Welcome to Artifice episode 142 and season 7 of the podcast. Well, if you haven't been following along with me, you're probably wondering, Emily, why is season 7 starting in March and not January? And I'll say to you, because on December 11th, I had a ski accident and had a terrible knee injury. I tore my ACL, my MCL, and both menisci in my left leg. I had surgery on December 22nd and then couldn't walk, no zero weight bearing for six weeks after that, which brings us to the beginning of February. And now I just actually got home from physical therapy. I can do stairs, if slowly. And I can walk pretty well. It's like mostly limp free. And I'm getting better all the time. And now I have the bandwidth to dig back into the podcast. So season seven is already recorded. I started recording it in uh, June of 2022. So these episodes were recorded between June and November, like through the end of November. Um, And they're all ready to go. And then Basically, my plan is just to make season eight like a little bit shorter. So we'll have season eight uh, dropping in the summer, starting in the summer, and then we'll still end in December as per usual. And I have interviews lined up and I'm really excited about what's to come. And also, let's not get ahead of ourselves because we have to we have to do all of season seven, which is so exciting. So speaking of exciting, years ago, during the pandemic, I think, um, but still years ago, I was listening to Radio West, which is one of my favorite podcasts. It's a podcast um, that's here in the kind of local Utah um, uh, affiliate of NPR. And Doug Fabrizio is the host of the podcast, and he's just brilliant and thoughtful. He's one of my favorite interviewers. I'm very inspired as an interviewer by his work. And... um, Also, he just asks like very thoughtful questions and has great guests. And he had today's guest on Radio West. And I was mesmerized listening to their interview and thought, I, it's a long shot, but I got to try to get her on Artifice. So I reached out to Catherine Coles. Um, I bought her book like right away, like later that day. I think it was even, it was, I pre-ordered it. Um, she was, she was on Radio West promoting a new book, a new collection of essays called The Stranger I Become. And uh, I emailed her um, right away and and just said, I loved your interview on Radio West. I'd love to have you on. And um, with the pandemic, we it took us a little while to get it scheduled, but it was absolutely thrilling to interview Catherine Coles. And then listening back to this interview just last week, I just, I can hardly believe it. It's every word out of her mouth is just it's poetry, which is not a shock because she is, in fact, a poet. Um, and I just feel like really grateful. I, I had been feeling um, deflated with this knee injury and just kind of depressed and uh, went in to edit the interview and just thought, hey, I forgot how cool my podcast is. And um, certainly this interview is is one for the books and just, you know, one that I'll never forget. I found myself like writing down, like texting myself like quotes from the, the interview that I want to remember that I wanted to share with my students and put, you know, somewhere for myself to read when I'm feeling discouraged. Um, anyway, just like mic drop after every 
like sentence Catherine says. So um, I'm not even worried this is too much buildup. It's perfect. You're going to love it. Um, and the rest of this season is awesome too. I can't wait for you guys to see what I've got for you, the interviews that I have in the pipeline coming for you. Um, as always, I would love to hear from you. Um, you know, if you've been listening to Artifice, hey, this is season seven. If you haven't dropped a review or like a little rating, maybe go ahead and do it. It would mean so much to me. And it really helps with like the kind of, you know, boring algorithm kinds of things. Um, but I, you know, if you value the podcast, like maybe it's time to do that. Or just like drop me a little note. I'd love to hear from you. Send me like a get well soon, if you please. And of course, The Hallowed Wide, my most recent album, um, we had our release show at the end of October and then I had a million gigs in November and then I fucked my entire knee. Um, and so I still haven't released The Hallowed Wide as like an official album. It was out as singles, so I'm working on that. More to come soon, but you can stream all those singles and I will have the video of our live show available for you soon as well. Okay, I think that's plenty of intro. I'm happy to be back. Um, let me read you Catherine's bio. <clears throat> Catherine Coles was born and raised in Salt Lake City. After four years at school in Seattle and two in Houston and a year in Washington, D.C. as a writer in residence at St. Albans School, she moved back to Salt Lake to pursue her Ph.D. at the University of Utah. She taught for several years at Westminster College, then returned to the University of Utah, where she was now a distinguished professor in, English, in the English department. Coles's 10 books include seven collections of poems, most recently Wayward. Her memoir, Look Both Ways, was released in 2018 by Turtle Point Press, which will become, which will also publish The Stranger I Become, Essays in Reckless Poetics in 2021. That's the one that I heard her talking about and promoting with Doug Fabrizio and that I bought it right away. And then I seriously read like the first 10 pages and then thought about it for like a year because it's so exquisite. Um, okay, getting back into this bio, um, poet in residence at the Natural History Museum of Utah and Salt Lake City Public Library for Poets House Fieldwork Program. She also served from 2006 to 2012 as the third Poet Laureate of Utah and in 2009 and to 10 as the inaugural director of the Harriet Monroe Poetry Institute at the Poetry Foundation. In 2010, she traveled to Antarctica to write poems under the auspices of the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. So cool. We didn't even talk about that. That's fucking amazing. She has also received awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the International Digging into Data Challenge, and the Guggenheim Foundation. Her poems and essays have been translated into Spanish, Italian, German, Chinese, and Dutch. And deservedly so, because Catherine is maybe the coolest person I've ever met. I want to be her when I grow up, and I want to be her kind of right now. And um, yeah, again, just deeply, deeply honored to have Catherine on the podcast. Blessed by the words of wisdom she just threw down off the cuff in my humble little house in the suburbs of Lehigh. And yeah, Catherine, thank you. And for all the listeners, thanks for being here. Sorry for my absence for the last couple of months. I'm happy to be back. I love ya. And uh, please, without further ado, enjoy this wonderful conversation with the wonderful Catherine Coles. Here it comes. 
Great art almost feels like magic. It opens our minds to brand new ideas and teaches us to see ourselves and our world more clearly. Of course, behind all great art, there are artists. And I think that's where the real magic happens. As we go beneath the art itself to explore how artists do what they do, we see glimpses of the sorts of creativity and resilience that lead to the art that moves our world. And maybe we can learn to borrow some of that magic for our own thinking. That's the goal here. And now that we're on the same page, let's dive in. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Well, I really am just, I'm thrilled to interview you. I heard you on Radio West and just was like blown away by your interview and then bought your book immediately. Oh. Um, I've been reading it like, I'm, my, I'm so busy. I know it's such a bad excuse, but to read with my eyeballs, you know, yeah. I, like, yeah. I read with my ears Me a too. lot. I'm like a podcast interview complete audio junkie but I also you know I read for a, a living right. I teach literature I teach poetry right. and um and then uh, I also I read f- at least for an hour every day just for pleasure stuff yeah. that I have no intention ever of teaching though you never know that's right? lovely well I buy your book and I took it to the beach last summer and just was in love beach um, read I'm yeah, a beach, beach read. read oh my gosh and then I haven't really read any since <laughs> I was at the beach but I'm going back to the beach in in uh, in August so I'll finish it oh great <laughs> but I just loved it I just felt like uh, just the way you talked about writing creative nonfiction. I don't think I'd ever heard of that before. And also, especially the way that you were talking about, like, being a, a, a different kind of artist, you know, trying to find your place. I really related to that. So I think that that's something that never ends. Yeah. That at least if you are progressing, then your place is always changing and you're always sort of doing that little dance, trying to, trying to find it. And even like within an individual piece of work, if you're working at your maximum at your best, it's like being a tightrope walker, except the tightrope's not there until you put your foot out and then trust that when you step down, it will be there and that you'll be able to keep your balance. Well, this is something I find myself talking about with a lot of my guests, but as, as the the kind of creative that I am, I feel like I figure out what I'm doing as I'm doing it. And then when it's finished, I find that I've gone through a personal evolution and now my identity is a little different. (laughs) It's just kind of like, it's like a constant, you know, which box am I in? And it's something that I feel like nowadays, a lot of like, especially in the music industry, a lot of, you know, marketing gurus are always talking about like honing your brand and, you know, being yourself. And it feels very like, but I'm all these things, you know, I don't know that I fit into like a Well, and I actually think that being yourself and honing a brand are inimical to each other, right? That one is very much about your interior life and the other is very much about kind of presentation. The great thing about being a poet is that you don't ever really have to leave your room, so you don't have to worry nearly as much about that. I find it to be such a soul-crushing puzzle and... Just, I mean, I, I lay awake at night just thinking like, how do I, how do I communicate myself into, into the world in a way that like, you know, can be received? Right. Ugh, it's a question for the ages. And now, I mean, even poets do go out and give readings and give talks and conversations and all that kind of stuff. And, and so figuring out how to perform yourself, right. right perform um, yourself. In right. a way that is 
both authentic to who you are and yet not so authentic that you're actually wearing your pajamas and haven't right. brushed your teeth. Well, and what yet. even is authentic? It's something I, I, I have a master's degree in jazz studies. And uh, I always think about this thing that Billie Holiday said about like, you know, you can't perform the same song the same way twice because you're a different person every moment. <laughs> Which feels well, really true to me. And you should be as an artist. You absolutely should be and always sort of trying to to capture that that moment of yourself. But you're also, if you're an artist, then you're doing that not for your own self, right? right. But for, for someone else, which means that you're constantly shaping and crafting that right. into a structure that somebody else can come into totally. and have their own experience of. So when my young students come to me and they think it's all about expressing themselves and expressing their experience, the fir- in the very first class, you know, what I do yeah. is I say, so like when you're reading your favorite author, do you actually care about the author? About yeah. Are you thinking about them? No, you're thinking about yourself. So so the important expression in the end is the expression that the reader or listener, right, right or receiver of that performance. Totally. That's what that's like so I I name this podcast Artifice. I literally always say because it's a cool word. And also because of this, like there's something inherently sort of uh, you know, artificial about what we do, like even with the best intentions, um, just because of this very fact of like the relationship between the artist and the art and the art and the audience and the audience and the artist, it's just, it's nothing is really real or something. So can I go, go all geeky, Please. theory, academic it's on you for favorite. a second? So I'm actually, um, giving a talk, uh, on, in England, but on Zoom uh, on Saturday, where I'm talking about um, eros in poetry specifically, which I actually think is different from narrative, um, et cetera. But, um, you know, the idea that Anne Carson has about eros is that um, it's always suspended in time. Mm -hmm. It never has a completion, and it's always mediated. So her example is... um, the fragments, the Sappho fragment, which I think is 65, but I could be wrong about that, where the speaker, who is the Sappho, right, is watching somebody else courting her beloved. Right. And she's not looking at the beloved directly. She's seeing the beloved through his eyes. So you have this triangle that is static. Mm -hmm. It never moves. It's never consummated, but there's this incredible... intensification of energy right Right. in that structure and I think that's that the poem is like that too and I'm going to just speculate that the performed song is like that in that um you have say the poem you have the reader and you have the poet and then the poem is actually the thing at the bottom in this triangle that both keeps them together and keeps them apart at the same time. And it has to remain that way. They can't ever, right, collapse. That makes perfect sense, yeah, Yeah. and I I feel it being true. Yeah. Yeah. It's like such a phenomenon. Uh, 
I love it already. Okay, so I like to start this podcast usually. I mean, we've been already having lovely conversation, but by getting to know a little bit better how your creative development occurred. And you've talked about this and written about this, but maybe I'll we'll hear like some new things. So when you were like a little kid, like the the earliest, you know, earliest that there are your own memories or memories that you've been kind of told about your childhood. What were you like as a creative child? Like what evidence was there that you were, what were you getting into? I had, um, and I've been accused of still having an extremely absorbing inner life. Yeah. Please tell me more. Which was mostly enough for me. I taught myself to read at the age of three. Um, so language was, very important to me from the very beginning. And I actually remember the moment that it happened because, you know, when you're little, you memorize books and then you perform reading, right? You enact reading. And I actually, and I had learned the alphabet and I remember the moment at which the words on the page were suddenly words that I was reading and not just reciting with my finger underneath them. So for me, that was um, an incredibly important moment. And also from the time I was little, I always wanted to be, like from the minute that I realized not only that those words existed and gave me that pleasure, but that somebody actually wrote them down. Wow. That That was was the thing. Yeah, that was the thing that I wanted to do so I know that when I was seven, I wanted to be a poet and a firefighter. Amazing. There was firemen in those days, yeah. um, many, many years ago. And then I wanted to be a poet and a marine biologist and then a poet and a lawyer. And then, as you can see, I get less practical. I wanted to be a poet and an actress by the time I went We're the same. I, like, I also had like a, a marine biologist phase and a lawyer phase. And a lawyer so phase, that's funny. Yeah. Well, my dad was a lawyer and I... And I knew that my dad would always say, like, a lawyer is really a writer. And um, in retrospect, I feel a little differently about him saying that. But yeah. um, but I think, you know, it rang true. It rang, it rang like something to my young self. Yeah. And I think that's true. I think that a lawyer really is a writer. It turned out not the kind of writer that I wanted to be. Right. My dad was a mathematician. Cool. And I actually think that mathematics and poetry have... A huge amount in common with each other. Please tell me more about that. So mathematics is um, kind of the pure expression of reality. Yeah. Physicists, chemists, et cetera, use mathematics to both describe and theorize the nature of reality, both what we can observe and what we can predict about it. And... Um, in that way, it's also very much about perception. But if we're talking about mathematics, it's also about beauty. And I remember I've told this story before, so you can cut it if it bores you. But uh, um, I was sitting when I was reading for my PhD exams on a um, beach on a Greek island with my parents, and I was hauling Homer these huge books around with me because right. I was reading for my exams. And my dad, uh, who's a was was a very funny and wry guy, said, so, so how do you know that's any good? 
And I said, well, you mean aside from the fact that we've been reading it for 4,000 years? Sure. And he said, yeah, aside from that. And I said, that does make it, you know, a repeatable experiment. Um, but I said, well, how do you know that a theorem is true? And which he loved because the answer is because it's beautiful. Right. Well, um, and yeah. so that that conjunction, right, of of beauty and the expression of some perceivable reality, right. I think, is where it's poetry like, is it's whole. Or it's whole. Yeah, 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 it's complete. I I, I agree. <laughs> My husband has a, a degree in physics, and uh -huh. we we talk. You know, we talk in these like art art math conversations yeah. frequently. <laughs> so my husband began as a, a theoretical physicist. Cool. Um, and then oh. moved into, um, he's a, a computer scientist cool. who does scientific visualization and simulation. So he still uses a lot of math and a it's, lot of There's physics. such a beautiful crossover between yeah. uh, like math and, and and science and the arts. Um, it's something that I think about a lot. Um, where were you in the, in the birth order? Do you have siblings oh, or? Yeah, I have an older brother and a younger brother. So I was the middle the child middle. and also the only girl. So I had a, um, both the experience of being the mediator and being the privileged mm, one. Interesting. Right? In, yeah. a, in a way. And um, my mother was also a middle child and the only girl. And so she, I think, um, you know, brought her experience of what that was like wow. and also the experience of being really the dreamy one, the one with the inner life, you know, sure. this was something that she understood. So I'm, I'm perennially fascinated by, um, like the, the identity of children, right. um, uh, children having like a, an identity. And, you know, I, I almost always ask this question to my guests and I've, I've done, you know, almost 150 interviews now with artists. Um, and many people just don't remember their childhood identities at all or or, or recollect that they didn't have much of an identity. But I love talking with people who did feel that at an early age. I would love to hear you talk about how you began to think about your own creativity as a little kid, how you thought about, you know, whether you maybe you didn't have these exact words, but whether you thought of yourself as being artistic, kind of what those things meant to you as a, as a child. Yeah, I, I actually did very much think of myself as being artistic. And, um, you know, I, I dabbled in the visual arts. I was never particularly musical. Sure. Um, but the visual arts, the theater, perf performing What, what did you do? Um, well, with the visual arts, kind of everything. Yeah. You know, I, um, I actually think that this is an art. I was really, really into um, sewing. Yeah. And design from a tiny, tiny age and making wow. like outfits for my troll dolls and yes. my Barbie dolls. And, I love creative play. Yeah. And, you know, really into, I don't know, glue and finger paint and yeah. just know, exploring. Just, yeah, all of that kind of stuff. And then um, I think I was in my first play in the first grade. Wow. I played a bluebird in something. And and was in very much invested in performing. You know, I, pl I played the leads in several plays when I was in high school. I actually 
um, wrote and played the lead in a one-act wow. play. It was not a good play. But um, still, I mean, that's but, so brave. I feel like, you know, we have to we have to try things. We have to try things. And so, you know, one's successes and also one's humiliations can be very tied up, right, yes. in these different things that... Um, that we tried, and then just on a basic level, I, I, and also my friends, you know, we were very into performative play, yeah. um, and so we didn't necessarily. F- and I think this is a kid thing anyway. I'm sure that all kids are like that, but maybe me more than my brothers, right? Where, you know, setting up a sort of scenario and then performing it. Absolutely. I certainly, I did ballet. I remember dancing, um, clearing out the furniture yeah. in the living room with my ballet friends. You were just hungry for all of it. Yeah. Were you a poet as a child? I, I, I mean, like in your soul. <laughs> Were you thinking about things poetically? Were you seeing the world? Like, does, is there a through line to like, you know, do do you recognize like your current self and your, in your baby self? Yeah. So I think that inner life, absolutely, absolutely. And then I wrote poetry. I mean, my mother has poems that uh, I wrote when I was six, seven years old that the teacher would send home with me with little notes saying, this is pretty amazing what she's doing. What kinds of things did you write about as a little kid? Well, I mean, I I was interested in form because that's right. What we knew in um, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, um, uh, especially the poems that that kids were right. uh, exposed to were mostly formal. So I was exposed to Emily Dickinson wow. at a very young age. I was raised in the Episcopalian Church, so with the King James Bible and the Book right. of Common Prayer, without which, though I will say I'm an atheist, I'm a non-believer in God as yeah. is formulated in those kinds of texts, but... Um, Without those books, I don't think I would be a poet, right? Because there you are every week being exposed to this amazing language and being exposed to the transporting, (gasps) right, quality. Spider. Oh, good. Oh, you don't like spiders. It doesn't look like a poisonous one. Let's leave him then. I'll deal with him him later. Um, So I I really relate to that. I think about that so much now. I mean... I talk about this a lot, but, um, I was not raised in a creative environment. My parents were, um, really emotionally abusive. My, my, my mother's passed away now. Um, but, uh, I don't, and I'm not in contact with my dad, but, um, you know, just a very like appearances based and there was no room for a little introvert, a little dreamy introvert. And, um, you know, I, I think I've, I'm at a place now where I'm, I'm able to start thinking a little bit more about what, what I did get out of my childhood. And I feel like just, yeah, learning the, um, studying language, you know, like even just in reading like the Bible, um, I grew up LDS, but I was, I was maybe had a bit of scrupulosity going on. So (laughs) he's coming for me. Oh, here, do you need a tissue? I'm going to just go ahead and get him. Ah! If he's the the kind that bites, you don't... He can stay there. Yeah, they just... It's just... It, I just don't want him to sneak up on me. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, I, I think, I think learning, learning the kind of meter of that kind of language um, and also just 
so when you say form, do you mean like verses, like structured verses and rhyme and meter? Yeah, rhyme, yeah. rhyme and meter. And so that was what I did. That was yeah. what poetry was as right. far as I knew was, you know, Dickinson and some Shakespeare and the, the, uh, some Robert Frost, yeah. who was poet laureate. Um, of the nation when I was a little girl oh. said these were the kinds of poems that were known in my household. My dad actually enjoyed um, wow. light verse, Eddie Guest, you know, funny I love it. light verse. And so that, and really until I went through a period in high school where I read a lot of um, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, who was a formal poet, but also... Um, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who was famous for her sonnets. I wrote a sonnet every morning before wow. breakfast for oh my gosh. for probably almost two years. So earnest. I so love it. So earnest. And <laughs> I then I it. went away from, I went away. Actually, my high school teacher, Helen Mulder, who was up at Rowland Hall, who is still alive, and I dedicated my latest book of poetry to her, and an, another teacher, Catherine Stockton. But... Um, she gave me as a prize for a different play that I wrote um, in high school, not the one that I performed in, um, a book of poetry by James Tate, yeah. who was the first free verse poetry, uh, first free verse poet I was exposed to. And it was like magic for me. And especially since one of the poems in this book ended, they're driving across country and he wakes up his companion and says, already we are in Idaho. And, wow. you know, I was going to Idaho all the time at this point in my life. And I thought, oh, isn't that amazing? This how, actually could be for me. How old were you? I was uh, probably 17, either 16 or yeah. 17. I was like yeah. that same age when I very first heard jazz, jazz, <laughs> right. which feels really similar. Like I was, I was just so moved by music and, and all art as a child and had this like, very thriving inner life as well. <laughs> it, it was probably a bit escapist for me too, yeah. but uh, I, I distinctly remember like picking up that first jazz record. It happened to be Miles Davis's Kind of Blue and just being like, what is this? This is something else. <laughs> like it's, but I also really love structure. So it's like, I, I as an, as a musician too, and as a composer, I think a lot, um, about what form does and doesn't do. It's like one of my, my well, pet topics. It's, right. It's always a choice. Um, and a free verse poem also has to find its form. Yeah. That's right. its job. It needs some of that. I feel the same way with music. Like yeah. if things are too, too unstructured, they're hard to even parse. Right. Um, but I love playing with form as a songwriter as well. And, um, you know, trying to be surprising and kind of, I don't know, <laughs> layered with form. Yeah. Um, gosh, I just, I love it. I love every single thing you're saying. I want to, I feel like we could have an hour long conversation about like any individual thing. Um, uh, do I want to ask anything else about your childhood? Maybe I'll ask like, do you have any, do you want to share any early experiences of like sharing your work, getting feedback? Like that is kind of a different thing, especially when you when you're living in that inner life so much? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I was always just sort of supported, but not in a way that necessarily took 
that piece of things too seriously. I come absolutely from a family of scientists on all sides going way back, way back. Um, So my father was a mathematician. And you didn't feel strange. I was a stranger. I was a stranger. Although that changed later, which I'll say something about. But my mother actually had two PhDs, one in geophysics and one in psychology. So she switched careers. Um, Her, every single person in her family was a geologist, um, like going way back, except for her uncle Carl, who won the Lasker Prize in chemistry. What a cool family. Yeah. So, so, you know, and then I married a scientist, obviously. um, So I feel kind of comfortable in that milieu, but I definitely was kind of the the odd person out. Yeah. I was clearly the person who, if somebody went into the arts or the humanities, um, that would be, I would be the one. But when I was in college, um, beginning actually as a theater major right. um, and an English major, and then abandoning the theater to, to focus on the poetry, my mother for um, probably three of the four years during our Sunday phone calls, because remember the telephone, that's what we did in those days. <laughs> yeah. um, every single week she would say, you know, it's not too late to be an engineer. Mm. And then she stopped. And then I realized she had stopped. And then I wow. actually said, well, you stopped asking me this why. And she said, well, first of all, your father and I have figured out that there are living poets because Robert Frost was long dead at that time. Okay. And she said, and secondly, we know that you're a really good waitress. We know yeah. that you will find oh your gosh. find your way. Which That's on the amazing, yeah. Good, so I actually have a lot of friends who really cringe about, at the waitress comment, but I actually took it at the time, and I still take it as an expression of confidence. Right, they that, knew you were scrappy and that you were going to yeah. figure it out. I talk about this with my guests all the time. This, like, this question of like, did you have pushback when you decided to pursue this career in the arts? Because it it is misunderstood. It takes some bravery, but I what well, you know what the kind of conclusion that we always come to is you're gonna figure it out if if you if you want to figure it out, and if not, then you're gonna figure that out too. And it takes a while, and this is something that my PhD students now, you know, coming into probably another recession, yeah. uh, et cetera, they sort of figure that somebody like me that I went all the way through and immediately got a tenure track job and everything's been free sailing, but it actually, you know, my parents weren't wrong. It took a while. I was, you know, an administrator for the arts council for a little while. Then I got a part-time was teaching adjunct teaching, got a part-time teaching job and then, you know, landed in the tenure track job. Yeah. Maybe, almost a decade after I finished my wow. PhD, yeah. right? So so it took a while, but... but there's no other option. That's right. the thing that we always want to tell people. Um, when you were like a teen, were you, um, were you at that point, like how were you in your, in your identity as an artist? Did you feel like an artist? Did you have fears about that? How were you self-referencing? I mean, I think I felt like an artist. I was doing, you know, all the theater stuff and and the writing and editing the literary magazine and 
you know, winning prizes for that. So my identity was really rooted in that. I also think that artists and maybe especially artists who are mostly like poets, where it's a very interiorized kind of thing. But was it, did you feel like a stranger all the time? Absolutely. Yeah. So I think artists are kind of natural strangers and... Um, I felt very much like the observer and I felt like the odd woman out. It turns out, you know, that 40 years later, I learned that everyone thought that I was absolutely the coolest one. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I don't think that is going to manifest for me in the same way, but I do think it's at least partly because my my home life was not safe. Right. You know, like I, I'd could, I wasn't allowed to flourish. Like I was just kind of trying to survive. And that inner life was very much a secret. I mean, I think it came out in small ways. Like I, I always loved writing and, you know, I had a couple English, I, my English teachers always loved me and I would get these little moments of validation and, you know, spinning a phrase a certain way or, or setting up an argument in a certain way. Um, and of course, like I was taking music lessons and kind of having these private little moments there, but, um, in a lot of ways I was just trying to be survive, you know? Yeah. And, you know, so there was some of that for me too, academically, though I'm an academic now, I was, um, quite a rebellious child. And if I had a teacher, uh, and my, my rebellions, I guess, were pretty passive aggressive. Mm-hmm. So if I had a pe- teacher who I thought was an idiot or sure. was, you know, never going to understand me, et cetera, et cetera, my response to that was just to stop showing up. Sure. I just was not present for that. And that got me into, yeah. you know, some trouble at different times, sure. um, really starting pretty young when I was eight or nine wow. years old. That is something I can relate to of having like such a firm identity as a, as a small kid, even if it was a secret identity, that's something I like remember distinctly, like just feeling like, well, what are we going to do about it? This is what I, this is who I am feeling just completely sure of some things. That's right. And if you're not a conforming child and you end up with a teacher who can't tolerate right? A non-conforming child, then you end up in, in trouble. So a few years ago, my high school sweetheart called me, it might've been 10 years ago. It was a while ago out of the blue and just said, wanted to say hi, wanted to see how you're doing. We had this long, he's also happily married in Chicago, but we had this long conversation. And he, at one point he said, I think he might've had a couple of drinks. He said, (laughs) you know, you were really scary. In Mm. high school, and I thought, excuse me, excuse me, I'm very small, I'm very nonviolent, and and he said, no, the thing about you is that you always did exactly what you wanted to do. That like integrity. And I, my response was, I always felt like I was just waiting to escape childhood so that I could do. I relate to that so deeply. What I wanted to do, and you know, even my mother says that. From the time I was a tiny child, I was just exactly who I was. Yeah. Um, and so I, th- and I remember being a small child and just thinking, I just have to wait this out until I can be free. I so I so, I so understand that. <laughs> I moved out of state like a week after finishing high school. It was just like, bye. <laughs> yeah. 
See, yeah. off I go. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you want to say anything else about like, so I, I'm really fascinated with human development too, mm-hmm. like the, the crossroads of creativity and like human development. I just, I can't get enough of it. Do you have any other, do you have anything you want to say about like, um, maybe teenage years and like how, you know, as an artist, like anything. <laughs> so when I was poet laureate, um, one of the things that you're constantly being asked to do is go into schools. And I'm not actually crazy about working with, um, with children particularly, but I really made a commitment to go to high schools whenever I was asked to do it because my message was, you know, for those of you who despair when someone tells you these are the best years of your life. Mm. Just remember, for you, these are not the best years of your life. It will get better for you. Um, And so to be able to go out and and give that message to the people who um, were not sort of invested in that particular kind of social and intellectual milieu that a high school provides and weren't going to leave that immediately to embrace, um, you know, ordinary life, right? Um, To be able to give that message to the kids who were sitting there feeling what I felt, which was as a stranger who couldn't wait to get out of there, in spite of the fact that I had a great education and great friends and good family and all of that kind of stuff. It's an odd feeling, isn't it? It's an odd feeling. And to be able to go out and not only communicate, but also embody the idea that you can be that stranger and still come into yourself later. It's a philosophy that that I keep all the time. And I always think about, and I tell my students, you know, you're a creative, create your life. Like Mm -hmm. just what can you do? You know? And it it feels like, yeah, having this kind of like meta, meta creativity in the way that you chart your life feels like, you know, the biggest artistic pursuit. So that's what you're doing right now, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think I, I, you mean with the podcast Mm -hmm. or everything, everything, but the podcast, Totally. I mean, I started this podcast (laughs) right after I finished, right after I left BYU and just felt like I needed to, I needed to like have a more artful conversation going and, you know, commune with artists who were doing something different. And yeah, I mean, it feels very, um, all of it feels very like experimental Mm -hmm. and exploratory Mm -hmm. and kind of, I don't know, creating, creating something that, uh, you know, just didn't exist before right. something right. different. Um, okay. So you, you sure. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. And also I think bear has, bear has tooted a few times and I'm sorry for that. If that's, Oh, I can't it smell it. Mask. I have okay. a pretty good mask. Okay, yeah. good. He's just poor thing. He gets like some, he gets like stress farts and the, the fireworks have been stressing him, but he looks pretty calm right now. He seems like a pretty chill guy at the moment. He's a very chill guy. He's my little lazy boy. He sleeps like 20 hours a day. Oh, she's like a big cat. Um, so you started out with theater and English. Um, what made you like, how, how did you decide to kind of let the theater, you know, not, maybe not go, but not to focus on it as much. Um, there were a couple of things. One, 
was that for me, and it's interesting being a poet because people experience poems as being extremely intimate and as giving a, a deep, deep view into the soul, and I'm using air quotes on that, um, of the poet. But for me, a poem is very a very constructed and a very controlled wow. space. Much scarier right. was being on stage and making those artistic choices in the moment in full view yeah. of everyone. I just found it very stressful. And then I had a theater professor tell me, you know, you just can't do both of these things. You have to choose. And I think he was trying to sort of direct me to a greater commitment to the mm. theater. Yeah. But I went home and I took what he, I think it was wrong, but yeah, I, I took it to heart. Sounds, sounds wrong to me. Yeah. And, <laughs> but I thought, well, if I have to choose, then this is what I'm going to choose. I'm right. going to do, do the poetry. And um, Does, it was, and that was fine. And I'm actually really glad yeah. that I'm not... If you can remember to that, those feelings of loving theater or, you know, even, even through that fear, does it, does it, and did it like speak to the same thing in you that writes poetry? Like, cause I think I, I agree they're different, but I also know as like a, you know, kind of multimedia type of right. artist that there's something, you know, uh, kin. Yeah, no, uh, I, I completely agree with that. Um, and I think, you know, if we go back to this idea that what you're trying to do is create a structure that is really for the viewer or for the right. reader, right, to step into and have their experience, right? These are just two different and not entirely different because right. they're both very much language-based, right? right? Um, two different ways of doing that. It's just that the... Um, the level of, and for being a very interiorized person, and I know that a lot of actors are, are also, sure. you know, introverted and very interiorized pe people, but to be making that structure in the moment that the person is experiencing it, yeah. for me, was very nerve-wracking. Yeah, yeah. It was rewarding. Right. Right? But it was very nerve-wracking. And with the poem... Um, I actually have the freedom of kind of making the mistakes right. and uh, the decisions in private and then putting it right. out and letting the reader have that experience. And I've actually, as I've gotten older, I feel much less need to control that experience mm -hmm. or say what it should be. Yeah. It's like any experience you have with this. Um, and I've gotten more recently some really interesting responses from people uh, yeah. about poems where I've thought, well, that's interesting that <laughs> you would get yeah. that out of it. And um, But I'm not anymore at all defensive about that. Sure. I'm perfectly happy for that to happen. Whereas I think when you're doing it in real time, um, that when people come back with a response in real time, that's something completely unexpected to to you. Um, your decision making um, right. changes, difficult and for me, that process. was very difficult. Yeah, that's interesting. I I like what you're saying. It's like 
all of these creative acts are like world building at some point, at some level, creating an experience for a viewer, for a reader, for a listener. I, I really feel the same way. Like I have an idea and I want to, I want to build a thing that someone can like explore that idea within or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's one thing I wonder, like, have you continued, have you written any plays? I, I haven't really since college written. I wonder a if play. writing something would feel different. Like writing something yeah. to be performed would feel different. I know I feel a little different because I write I write concept records. Like I've I've never written something that's I, I don't write one offs. You know mm-hmm. I write like songs within a within a story within like a broader structure, and that feels different to perform live because I've already written it. You right. know yeah. Yeah. And the the in person of, you know, the executing the the stories in the room, I'm sure it feels similar to like reading a, po- a poem. Yeah, so one of the things that I was going to say is I still perform. Right. Absolutely, right? right? I perform within readings and as with a play, a live performance, every reading of a poem is different yeah. from every Ephemeral. other reading of the poem. It is a ephemeral is exactly the right word and then on the level of improv I teach right right, right? right. and I actually more and more as I've gotten older I'm more and more improvisational yeah. I have a sort of general idea of the concepts that I want to get to and the texts that I'm going to use but I'm extraordinarily responsive right. to my audience and I could go in a totally different direction and end up, end up reciting a poem from Yeats that I never thought I was going to bring into the classroom right. or go in, you know, into deep history in a way that I wasn't expecting. So there's a shape there and then there's an improvisation and I'm very aware of myself within the classroom as performing mm. as a po- and. By that, I mean creating an experience much more than just delivering information, which I'm not especially interested in. I want them to get information, but what I really want them to do is to have the transporting experience of the exposure to poems in real time. I deeply understand that as a teacher as well and, and feel really the same way. It is such a creative pursuit. And again, this kind of you know, triangle idea, like the yourself, the material, the students, you know, that is, it's, it's a living, it's a living thing. Yeah. Um, did you feel like a poet in college? Like, was that, I feel like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm just projecting, but like, this is such a weighty word in our culture. Um, and it feels like something maybe that you need have to earn, like how, what was your experience with like getting to the point where you felt like you could claim that identity? Yeah. So you're, I think you're absolutely right that that's a slow, is it the same for calling yourself a singer? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, with American Idol, especially it's very like everyone's a singer, but you know, a composer, a musician, I do think it's different. I, I, you know, I've been making every dollar of my income from music for 13 years now and I still have people all the time be like but you're not like a real musician so it's like I think it is a little I think it's weighted but I do think poet like poet is just it's classic it's like there's something ethereal about it you know I I do think it feels like 
kind of special culturally and, and a little heavy. But but also sort of weirdly similar to what yeah. you're talking about. So when my husband and I, my now husband, my then fiance and I bought our first house and we're moving in together and we hired like one of those two guys on a yeah. trucks thing and they were moving us and um at some point during a break, we were chatting and they said, my God, you guys have so many books. What do you do? And my husband said, oh, I'm a physicist. And I said, oh, I'm a poet. And and one of them said, oh, no, really? I write poetry, too. And then the other one said, you do? You know, so do I. And they had both been in this sort of, it's a scam thing called World of Poetry, where oh. you pay somebody to put your poem in an anthology. Right. Um, which does not necessarily mean they're not real poets, but that's not... So you have all these sort of... It definitely happens in music, too. Yeah, so the yeah the, um, ways in which people who long to be poets and who may be on their way to that, but they can get exploited along the way. And my husband afterwards was joking about it because he had seen this happen, you know, yeah. many times at cocktail parties, et cetera. And he said, you know, funny, nobody ever says, oh, I'm a physicist too. I Only I don't have time to get to my experiments. I have a lab set up in the basement. Yes. And, and everyone's always saying, oh, I'm a poet too, but I don't have time to write poetry. Yes. So there's the first obstacle, right, is that you have to write Ugh. poems. And these two guys with their truck, each one of them had written poems right. right at some point so there's the first obstacle when I was 19 in college I published my first poem in a literary magazine where I sent it off and the person didn't know me right, right, right so right. I started at 19 and that was actually Quarterly West here at the University of Utah wow. um, the editor at the time didn't know each other but he is now a very good friend of mine which is how these things happen but um so there's like the first thing right. that there are people out there who are the, you know, much bemoaned gatekeeper, gatekeepers, right. right. But who are saying, oh yeah, you know, here's something. Yeah. And then I was, then I would introduce myself on airplanes, right. To, as an English teacher yeah. and then an English professor. Okay. And I still do that if I don't want to talk about being oh a Oh my poet. gosh. I fully, fully <laughs> deeply understand right. I will give like the simplest stupidest answer yeah. like I yeah it because it means so many things does that thing of of people being like oh I also am a poet but I don't have time does that bother you um or has it ever how do you deal with it on the one hand I really struggle with that kind of yeah thing. it's it so so yes but I'll also say that I'm sympathetic with it because it's like a sign. It's the way people know to express a longing. You're so right, but I also get I get angry about and, it, and I yet get, I get jealous or something. Yeah, yeah. So something. So I have been known to say, "Well, you'll be a poet when you make time to write poems." Right. I have been known to, known to say that. So my parents. <clears throat> both retired and started to write wow. and they both became published writers my dad wow. in creative nonfiction, my mom in nonfiction, but also mo mostly right in yeah. poetry and and uh I don't know if she's listening but mom you're pretty good she's pretty good <laughs> but she doesn't right prioritize it so yeah. she wants to be a poet and to be acknowledged as a poet, but 
and I don't blame her. She's almost 90, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't, she wants to present, present in that way, but she doesn't necessarily want to do the work. She wants to want to do the work. Sure. Right. I mean, but that has to mean something. I mean, I know, you know, but yeah, when, when people kind of put those kinds of things at me, I just feel like, but you're, you're skipping over the part where I have put in that work. Right. Yeah. And I can get a little, you're, I can get a little defensive or something. Yeah. About you're that. skipping over the work part. Yeah. Which and really matters. It's not like it was easier for you to do that work or easier for me to do that work. It's heart wrenching and it takes a lot of time and you've got to hustle and you know, it's, it's, it's a labor for sure. It's a labor and it's, I mean, it's not digging ditches and it's also not moving people's house fulls of books so we can be you but know, you really, might be waitressing while you're doing it you might be waitressing and you i might, might be singing be. in a wedding band which is pretty intense that's right it's not digging ditches but it's, it is yeah it is something so so they're all of we all have to make a living yeah. and we all have lives and we all have people who want things from us yeah. and so what i would say is that the singer the musician is the one who figures out how to structure all of that in such a way that protects the art. And this, the same is true, right, yeah. of the poet. It's the right. person who, and I, you know, I try to teach my students this too, um, is I say, so when you're doing your calendar, the first thing that you put in is your time Block for your writing, writing time. poetry. I tell my students the same thing. And I'm also the one who is making them read for their PhD exams and, you know, do this, that, and the other yeah. thing. But this is the first thing you do. And and that is the time that you absolutely protect. Yeah. So that if somebody calls you up and says, let's have coffee right. next week, that's not the time that you take away I totally agree. for your coffee date. And when somebody... And don't tell the person who's not right. a poet, oh, I can't, I'll be writing them because other they people will it. not. Well, they might even believe it, but they don't care. That's what I mean. They don't believe in it. Yeah, yeah. they like, don't believe in it. Yeah. That's right. So they don't, they think, oh, so that's like free time. They don't believe that it's sacred. Yeah. Yeah. I talk with my students a lot about strategies for um, defending your creative time, especially for students who live at home and their their parents know that they are not at a lesson, they're not at work. You know, my teenage students or college students who are living at home, we talk a lot about strategies for communicating to your roommates, the people who live in your space, how actually important, like you have to treat this like it's a job and you have to protect it fiercely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's tricky skills to learn. And I do think that takes some bravery to step into that identity where you you take your work seriously in that way especially before you're having any kind of results that's that's hard that's yeah. i find that to be like a i find that to be like a pivotal uh step for for a young creative of any medium taking the claim so one thing that i'll say that might, might be comforting to you, and I'm going to guess I'm between 20 and 30 years older than you are. I'm 34. Okay. So, um, uh, and it's hard to tell with a mask also how old people are. And I'll be 63 this summer, so. Um, Just almost exactly like the 10s. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it 
it actually, for me, has gotten easier mm -hmm. in that um, I used to have to be very rigid about this time goes to this and this time goes to this mm -hmm. and this time goes to this. And I think that's essential yeah. for a young and even a young to midlife I feel person. like I'm young, so. I feel yeah. like you're young, too, so. <laughs> um, but at some point for me, it all became seamless so that the Good. reading that I'm doing for my teaching, mm -hmm. the conversations that I'm having right, right now with you, these are, and the writing that I'm doing, they all yeah. are speaking to each other and informing Ooh. each other in a way that um, access. So yeah. it used to be that I had to know that I was going to sit down and now it's yeah. the poetry time for the poems actually to be available right. to me. Right. And now the poems are like right here. I love it. It's so delicious. I see little glimpses of that. Yeah. Like these conversations really are like, it's a, it's a creative wellspring that I have built, <laughs> you know, like it, it fee and the teaching is the same, you know, it, it, they feed in and then also lately I've been thinking a lot about like, I've been trying to teach myself how to grow things. Mm -hmm. I grew up in Arizona and I do not have a green thumb. I have no intuition, but I feel very romantic about plants and I've been, you know, I've been la <coughs> laboring a little bit to learn how to grow plants. And that feels, you know, um, like very creative and very like informative. And like, there are these weird lessons there and, I don't know. It's all, it, I, I feel little flickers of that and I'm looking forward to feeling more. Um, can you talk about, so one thing that I loved, I, I forget whether I read it in your book or whether I heard it in that Radio West interview. I think it must have been in your book, but um, this feeling of being kind of told like that you're not the right kind of artist or that your mediums aren't quite solidified, but kind of knowing that you're onto something. Will you talk about that and like, just how you dealt with that as an artist, that feels so important and yeah. really inspiring. Yeah, so I, I'm hoping I'm a little different than this as a teacher, but um, my teachers who, or many of them, who were very important to me, were often quite dogmatic mm. about um, the kind of poem that a person should be writing. And part of this is right about your moment in history. So when I came out of high school writing a sonnet a day before breakfast and then was plunged suddenly into the creative writing workshop at the age of 18 in the university, nobody was writing formal poems. And in fact, it was forbidden. Wow. I mean, not... There, it wasn't written down on the syllabus, no, no formal it. poems. But if you brought a formal poem into workshop, you know, it was not going to be favorably received. Yeah. Um, and so in some ways that was good for me So because I learned how to write free verse, which I needed to know how to do. And now I move back, back and forth between yeah. them very easily. Um, and it was also a very particular kind of free verse, which was based in kind of the deep image um, and I actually had someone... What does that mean? Sorry. So um, I call it the Clint Eastwood School of Poetry, which is um, this happened, which looked and felt and sounded like this, and this happened, which looked and felt and sounded like this, and then, and then you know, the stone glinted in the sun and the butterfly's wing mm. um, did this, et cetera. So it's all extraordinarily concrete... And then at the end, there's some spectacular image 
uh, or statement, and the reader's supposed to guess what the intellectual and emotional content of the poem is. So I love it. This, then this, then this, (laughs) and now you have to guess how I'm feeling about it. Um, And uh, I'm a very thinky kind of person you might have noticed so I love I, it I'm just like I'm so I'm in love with you I think oh thanks <laughs> it's it's definitely mutual but I'm very much given to abstraction and so I would take a poem into workshop and I would think you know like if I have an image every third line I can get away with this but if I went four mm-hmm. lines then somebody would start cutting at the thinky stuff yeah. going on in the poem and oh, Catherine and I would get all these um uh poems back with, you know, people's lines through them. And at first I very much took that to heart. And then I had a wonderful teacher, Stephen Dunn, who just passed away last, about a year ago, alas, um, who came to visit. And I was very lucky in that I got, as an undergraduate, to take the graduate poetry workshops. So I'm in there and I've given him this poem that's like, image, think, think, image, think, think. And he gave me back the first poem and he had cut every single image out of the poem and said, this is good though, right? This is good. And he said, and this is your poem. And I was was like like, waiting for you to say the other thing. Yeah. No, no, no. He did the opposite (laughs) thing. And he said, he he said, here's where your voice is. Oh, wow. How old were you? I was probably 19. Oh my God. Just around that time I started publishing. That's amazing. Not, yeah. Um, and so he was an incredibly important um, teacher. Gave you for permission. Me. Gave me permission. But even still, you know, I think all the way through graduate school, I was very much kind of demonstrating that I knew how to write poems in the contemporary mode. And so from the deep image thing, it went to these sort of confessional narratives where you talk about the worst thing that ever happened to you as a child um, and end with an image. And um, the problem is that only like five bad things happened to me when I was a child. So I knew that this was not going to take me through a whole, uh, a whole career. And so it was after I defended my dissertation, but while I was finishing my first book that came out of my dissertation, that I started to write these poems that I think of as being very rebellious in their abstraction, in their desire to move. So the other thing is that each of these poems was supposed to be about one thing, right? A singular subject. And I really wanted to talk about this. I wanted to move from the the Utah desert to the palaces of Italy, right, to... I really get it. Yeah. I really do. Like, and I, I, I often also get told that I'm a bit, like, too verbose. Like, <laughs> I, I, I write these concept records, and my, my, my composition tends to be wordy. Like, I also... I love language so much. It's like another thing I'd like to talk about with you. Like I'm a musician and I think about music as language, but mostly I feel like music is a vehicle for like the words that I want to say. And I'm building the music. I'm I'm like structuring the music like for the, for the lyrics a lot of the time, maybe not always, but I'm in favor of this. (laughs) Yes. And then I also write a ton about my writing. (laughs) Like I'm writing essays all the time. Every, um, every month I write an essay, like I listened to the last 
um, months worth of podcast episodes and write an essay about some topic that seems to have arisen in all of the conversations. And I'm just writing all the time. And I'm, I'm, I don't have formal training as a writer, but I, I feel like I'm a writer whose medium is music. And yeah, I also, I also get the feedback all the time. Like you're everywhere. Like there's too many things, like it's not focused. It's kind of like this and that. And I just feel like, exactly. <laughs> like, right. It's, but, but these things put together are so fascinating to me. Like I, I couldn't bear to separate them. <laughs> I don't know. I really understand. And so, so and then from my advanced stage, yes, please um, tell me, <laughs> I'll say it will happen. Right. Where so you should absolutely trust your instinct on this. And the moment will come, you know, it's like they say in calligraphy, right, that you that the master does this and it's perfect. But it's all of those great years of leading up. So you might find that you come to a point where you're less verbose. But the reason that you'll be able to do that if you do come to that point, and maybe you won't, and that's okay too, (laughs) right? But if you do come to that point, it's because, right, of everything that you have been synthesizing and using. And sometimes you have to try on every kind of expression and every mood um, and every emotion before you can figure out how to do this one here. And so are you a singer-songwriter? Is that what you would call yourself? And I just write so much. I write so many words. But yeah, my my second album, I'm, I'm in the middle of releasing my third album right now, but my second album was called Masks. And I was writing a lot about, you know, the faith and my mom who I think was a narcissist you know it's like we don't want to throw around diagnoses but like she was kind of textbook and uh and also thinking about this idea of identity is like things we need to try on these masks like which is the mask which is ourself and I really feel I really feel these things to be true I think that's right and in in poetry especially um Everyone always wanted to talk to me, and I think my students still talk about this, about, you know, finding my voice. You have to find your voice, et cetera, et cetera. And here's what I'll tell you that I think other people might feel differently, but that I think is absolutely true, which is we don't find a voice. We construct one. And we construct a voice by trying on all the voices. Absolutely. Right? And we discard those that mean nothing to us, but we... Um, absorb, yes. right? All of these voices as we go, and then they become available they to us. into something uniquely yours. Well, except that then the other thing I would say is that this is a never-ending process. That if you are really making art all the time, later as well as earlier, that that voice um, continues to transform, and you will come again and again and again into yourself. Oh, as I hope so. I love yeah. it. I love this idea. Yeah, and it feels really intuitive, and it also feels so deeply related to that, uh, what was the word you used? Not rebellious, but uh, nonconformist child or nonconforming child. I think child. I might have said rebellious. Yeah, I think you maybe, maybe you said both. But yeah. yeah, I mean, I really feel the same way about it. Like, I also, as a child, just felt like, like, I distinctly remember, like, writing 
writing things, you know, from the time I was really little to the time I was like in high school and in AP classes and having my dad, who is a great grammatical writer, you know, he's a lawyer and he's a great grammatical writer, not a creative telling me, you know, you can cut this, you can cut this and just feeling like, how dare you? (laughs) That sentence has such perfect rhythm and such beautiful, you know, like just the percussion of it is like really delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and just being like, you know, feeling my own authority about those kinds of things as a young person. And I feel the exact same way now. I mean, I feel maybe a little bit, if I'm honest, I think I feel more at sea about it now than I did as a teen, <laughs> but, but, but nevertheless, what can be done? What can be done? You just, <laughs> you just, just be. you just keep doing it and you embrace it as you go. And sometimes I would say that, um, that wonderful, perfect sentence, you can put that aside for later mm-hmm. if it's not serving the specific goals of right. the, right, the piece now. So that's another thing that you learn, or at least that I've learned is like to let go of things a lot more. Yeah. Easily, I'm just way more precious about, uh, way less precious, sorry, about my own work and my own words. And I'm perfectly happy to say about something, ah, pretty good, not the right thing. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that too. I, I'm, I'm very certain that I have all of the things in the world to learn still. I really hope so. Um, but I, but I also, I know pieces of that to be true. You know, I tell my students, like, especially with writing lyrics, like if it doesn't feel exactly right, keep going until it does. Cause there, there is a solution somewhere and yeah. Letting, letting go of like a sentence that just isn't rhymable. You know? like, right. Right. Like, um, if it's just going to ruin the whole rest of it, even if it's a perfect line, you gotta, gotta kick it out. Well, or I would even say it's, and with my students who are younger than you, so you'll already know this probably, but, uh, those lines that are really only about you and sure. your own desire to express yourself that aren't going to finally, fulfill the readers or the listeners needs. I don't know. I think I still struggle with that one. Yeah. I think I'm still trying to, I think I'm still trying to heal some of my own things. It's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. Like how much of this work is for me, albeit I think exquisitely done. Yeah. How much of this work is, is for, you know, and I think it's both, but there might be like a little too much of me in it sometimes. Well, and it always starts there. So the um, poet also now gone, Archie Ammons, A.R. Ammons, talked uh, in my presence once about the feeling of the poem to come as a kind of pressure or anxiety, yeah. Yeah. which you will, I think, be familiar with this as, you know, something that wants to come out. And that his job as a poet was then to to bring it out and bring it out, and out until finally it's completely out here, and then he can separate himself yeah. from it. It's right. that last act of separation that is the hardest mm. one. I, I hear what you're saying. I think I I think think I think I understand a fraction of it. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I have to ask, what were you writing these sonnets about every single day? Oh my gosh, you know, they were teenage sonnets, right? So they were about um, 
They were about love. Um, most, I would say probably mostly about love and not even necessarily about a love that I was experiencing at the time. They were very much um, modeled after uh, the poets that I was imitating, which I think is fine. Right? Absolutely. This is how we yeah. learn is by imitation, but they were about love and they were about being young and reckless, which mostly I wasn't. I was rebellious, but not, I was sometimes reckless, but, you know, not in the way, the right. mode of Edna St. Vincent Millay. They very much depicted a sort of romanticized version of the youthful self. Did What did it feel like to be so disciplined about something so like grown up at such a young age it's hard to that part I don't really remember I mean I sus, I hate to say it but I suspect I was pretty smug okay um, about it. <laughs> I love it okay I also want to just talk about language because I I love I love 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 nonfiction that feels like poetry like your book the stranger I become do you would you, do you call that poetry um, I call it lyric prose. lyric prose. And, you know, I'm mostly a poet, so I have, right. like, eight books of poems, and then that's my first book of essays. And, I love it. I love it. Um, so the thing I'm interested right now as a geeky, interested in right now as a geeky academic is um, sort of has to do with genre, but not about poems as opposed to prose yeah. as such, because I think that poems can occur in prose. Absolutely. Um, I think so too. But more about lyric as opposed to narrative. Yes. This is the distinction I'm really interested in. And you Tell will know everything. this in songwriting as well, right? Because you have like a songwriter like um, Lyle Lovett or Mary Chapin Carpenter, you can sort of see where um, I'm very much in the sort of folky. Yeah. I, I like that stuff because. Joni Mitchell, maybe. Joni Mitchell. Yeah. Because you can have that song that's very much about telling a story, yeah. but you can also have that song that's very much um, in that triangular like mode abstract. of creating yes. um, an ex an, a sort of erotic experience, not necessarily yeah. about sex, but about um, being suspended yes. in that that like that's always the kind of writing I'm trying to do. Right, which is, whereas narrative is actually trying to bring you to the culmination of desire, there's always an end. Yeah. In lyric, there's never an end. Right. And so in my lyric prose, I'm just as interested in how you can do that in sentences yes. and paragraphs as I am in poems and how you can do that in lines. Oh, I love it so much. I read um, Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek when I was like, 20 right and felt that way about that and I've been I have I haven't found anything that's made me feel any like remotely like that until reading your book oh thank you it's so beautiful and I love I love the way that it it's sentences that are like unassuming maybe you know depending on how you're looking at it but like so beautiful like just like musical but but sent, but you know, an unassuming sentence structure. You know, if you're not paying attention, and it's just, I want to hear all your thoughts about it. <laughs> what does it feel like? What are you getting at? What are you thinking about? Like, how are you thinking about language? So, I, in the prose, I think about language the very, in very much a similar way to the way I think about it in poetry, yeah. which is that I'm trying to construct. Um, so, if we think about narrative as having a construction of if this, 
then therefore this, right? So you're always yeah. moving forward toward that consummation, right, at the right. end. That in lyric, I'm always thinking about the this and this and this and this and not moving forward in time, but all of it accumulating into this same sort of static but expanding universe, right, Right. that's taking place. So I will say that in those essays, every single word is probably touched a hundred times in each of those essays. And, you know, speaking about editing, um, almost all of them had many more words mm. at one point than they have. So one of the things that I'm actually trying to do is get rid of those sort of narrative moves, right, that lead you to think that right. what we're working toward here is a conclusion right. or a, an act of communication. Did I'm you sorry. feel like you like needed to write those in order to get to the next thing and then yeah. remove the link? Yeah. Cool. So, and then um, a lot of the time they, the essays started as um, talks that I was invited to give. Yeah. And those can be, I'm writing one for this weekend that has to be no more than 12 minutes. Oh my gosh. Right? So <laughs> at one point, it w- and I know exactly how long it takes me to read a hundred words, right? So at one point it was 20 minutes and then it gets cut and cut and cut and cut. And there's this external necessity that's actually very useful for me yeah. because it really makes me examine every single thing yeah. in it. And then before it becomes an essay for the book, it gets probably combined with maybe another one of those talks or expanded in ways that I knew that I was going to expand it. But the impulse is always to, yes, expand um, in terms of adding. We've talked about wanting to add this other thing and this other thing and this other thing. I was just going to ask about that again. Right. But then the (laughs) language has to be so contracted. I love it so much. So how are you thinking about these like other things, other things now? Like, what are you thinking about? You could, in terms of topics or in terms of like structure. So I'm, I'm doing this, this talk for this weekend, which is very much on my mind, but I also have a deadline in the fall, um, for an essay that uh, I was invited to write, um, like a year ago, but I wasn't so I started making notes, but then I wasn't given a deadline. So I did a whole bunch of other stuff. Sure. And now I have the deadline. So I'm working hard uh, on this essay, which is meant to address a writing landscape in the Anthropocene. Um, and, Tell me more. And so <laughs> you have seen some of my good morning photographs yes. of yeah. that tend to look either north i just i step out onto my deck to hang out the bird feeders and i look around and then i snap something either to the north up city creek canyon or more often they started all being west out to the great salt lake which is about 20 miles away but just visible on my deck so i've been doing that since um april of 2020 it was a it was a COVID thing Right. It was a way. It's visual I, art now. Yeah. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was a way of saying to my friends in Australia and the UK and where I wasn't traveling, right. I'm here. Yeah. Um, and exactly right here, here. And um, and 
And there are a bunch of other things that come into this, including a poem called Whale Fall um, and a poem, poem called You Won't Find Consolation that's actually about how deer only see the color blue. Wow. Um, but it has a glacier in it. And so it becomes, it moves from being a sort of science poem to being a poem about climate change because you can't put a glacier in a poem or a whale in the poem right anymore without these things happening so and during the course of my photographing the great salt lake from my deck the spiral jetty went dry Mm. the lake lost two-thirds of its surface area this is visible in these photographs, which I had no idea, right, that I was documenting this thing. So all of these things are going to come into this essay, right. which the sub the subtitle is "We Are All Eco Poets," yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, right. Which is about you how you can't avoid these things, but there are all of these different things that have really accumulated over a, a period of about four years yeah. that I'm now looking at in retrospect. Um, as a poet who resisted being a feminist poet and resisted being a, a nature poet, small n, mm. and always would correct to nature poet, large n, like physics. Sure, sure. <laughs> right? Like a National Geographic poet. Well, and or even like, a like a, an poet. astronomer poet. Oh, I see. Or, I see. you know, a poet who looks yeah, through yeah. a microscope, but really a science-oriented as opposed to like an Annie Dillard kind right. of, I lo- and I love her work, but that, w- that was not my right, right, right. focus or my method. Um, and in fact, the um, Stranger I Become is really all about perception, yeah. right? Um, so nature, big N, nature. But now we're, we're all nature poets because you can't actually write about the world without having the pressure Right. I have this about it. So the essay is a sort of examination of that, that transition. When you're thinking about these like multifaceted topics and kind of finding where they interplay or are you thinking like about patterns? Like, like what does it feel like? Like when you're trying to find that through line or do you find the through line and then write about the things like, what does it feel like? Totally write about the things, totally write about the things first and then try to figure out how, you know, this chunk is going to get broken up and interspersed, right? So the pattern making comes later and a lot of cutting. Does the pattern making feel like, how do you feel about the pattern making? Um, I feel that as if that is, um, the work. That's how I feel too. Really? Yeah. Please, please tell me more. So like, I just went out on a limb there because I was hoping you would say that, but please tell me more. So my favorite New Yorker cartoon, which I, I think is still on my bulletin board in my office, but who knows because who goes there anymore, but uh, is uh, um, two shaggy looking guys sitting on bar stools having a drink and one says to the other, the thing I hate about writing is it's just work. Um, which is also the thing I, I love about writing because you get so subsumed into it, but, um, and I'm kind of at this place right now where I have all this stuff and I know that I'm at some point I'm going to realize I need more stuff, but 
um, I'm, it's kind of a thicket, yeah. right? And I can't really figure out um, how to get out of that thicket. I really right? feel it. Please continue. <laughs> so, so um, and I'm guessing a concept album is very much like this, right? Because yes. you have a song and a song and a song, and you're pretty happy with these songs, right? Yeah. And then you have this thicket, yes. um, right, of songs, and, and you have it. to figure out. It's a puzzle. Yeah, it, it's absolutely a puzzle. And then you realize, um, you know, sort of like putting your foot out on the and hoping the tightrope will come up, right? You're putting this puzzle together, but you have to make a lot of the pieces kind of as you're going. It's like, oh yeah, this has to go like this, but I'm missing a piece here and a piece here. And then there's other stuff where you think, oh, I spent so much time and energy on that piece, but you know, it has to go away. I totally get it. And I also really feel like the pattern making is the work. It's so fascinating to me. That's, I think that's why I also am thinky and wordy because it's like, I have to start with this huge mass. That's just like, it's like a, the, the sculptor's (laughs) principle. So that's, (laughs) this is exactly the image I sometimes use, which is, you know, I'm really sorry that Rodan had to chip away all that marble to get at the figure within, but we have to make the mountain. Yes. And then quarry the marble and then, right. But we have pull it out of nothing sometimes. So we have to make everything that we're going to then sculpt. My mask is like getting, I have a fuzz inside of it. Yes. I feel so the same way. And that's why, like I give myself these monthly essays where I'm looking at interviews, you know, I'll be talking with you and then maybe, you know, maybe next week I'll be interviewing someone who is a is a liquor distiller who, you know, infuses florals. And then maybe the next week I'm talking to someone who, um, you know, makes bondage gear from leather, you know, I haven't, like, I haven't listened to that one. Is that upcoming? It's coming, okay. it's coming out and it's in season yeah. six. Um, but yeah, I mean, I love that I do it on purpose. I try to leave myself these traps of like, right. you know, interviewing someone maybe who's very conservative, which I tried to do. Um, you know, I just feel like it's a, it's a, it's a practice, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a communication practice and it's a, it's this pattern making too. And then trying to look at these very disparate interviews and find something cohesive to write about. But I feel like it's just my own little practice of like, it's a, it's a miniature endeavor of this bigger thing that I feel like I'm always trying to do, which is to build that big thicket. And then, and then you find an, you know, so then the books, The Stranger I Become, which is um, the one that you've been reading, right, is um, you'll maybe have noticed that all of those essays are really connected. They yeah. were written kind of in in time, right? And yeah. that's part of the building. I love um, it. It's magical. Practice. And I feel like, okay, am I wrong? Maybe this is a wrong thing to say, but do you feel like that piece, like this, 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 making your way through the thicket of it do you feel like enough people are seeing that (laughs) like do you like do you feel like I mean you said before you don't you don't worry that much about how it's being received but that's monumental (laughs) it's such a big effort like do you do you feel like you need to like explain what you've done um not unless someone asks me and then answering that question is actually also a sort of work in progress because I don't always have very clearly formulated in my head, you know, what I've done. Um, I'm going to tell you a 
a quick story about Please. reception. So I have this little sonnet, um, I think was in the last book, Wayward, called From Space, which is kind of my love poem to the National Security Agency. I read it when I realized that um, unless you want the satellites to get nudie pictures of you, doesn't matter how tall your fence is, you can't sunbathe in the nude. Right. Outside now, I haven't sunbathed for many years, but this is like, oh, no privacy unless right. there's a roof right. over you, and maybe not even then, but you can be seen by things that you can't see right. at all right. times. Right. And it's um, a poem that I really enjoyed writing. It's, for me, sort of humorous um, yeah. and tongue-in-cheek. And I got this such a sweet note, an email from a woman who said, I love this poem so much because my husband died recently, and I feel as if he's watching me from heaven, oh. and that this is what this poem is about. Mm. So the, a thing that... Because I didn't get all explainy. up in arms about it and explainy about it, um, provided her with mm. something that she needed. That is precious. Now, did I write back to her and say, oh, actually, this is about being watched from space by spice satellites? No, I did not. Or, you know, Google Maps or whoever is taking a picture. No, I did not. I thought that's yeah. wonderful. No, I, yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think maybe just more like talking shop, like with students or, you know, with yeah. other writers, like it's such a, it's like a, tre there's, there's a, I want to know, I want the treasure map, you know, I yeah. want the, the, I want the, I want the map. Right. And it, and it is, and it's hard and, and, um, and it, and you're, young and so you'll understand this too right that when you're young you have so much pressure mm -hmm. and this is part of what I was talking about when I said I needed to learn how to write that kind of poem sure. that somebody was going to start to publish so that right. I could start to get out there right so a lot of the drive when you're young right is about figuring out how to speak to the to and within and from the dominant mode of your time so that people will actually listen to you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I don't underestimate that need for my students to do that. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, I'm trying to help them learn what they need to learn in order to do that. And you notice I say help them learn, not teach them, right? Because right, right, um, right. in some ways they know more about what their the mode of their moment is, right, than yeah. I do. And on the other hand... I'm simultaneously trying to teach them to relax a little bit sure. and to understand that it's all part of a process and that they're never going to finally, right, arrive, arrive yeah. and be the artist that they're going to be. Or, right. And they shouldn't hope for that. Right, 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 right. So what I want them to have is all the skills that they can get, including the ones that are maybe not fashionable right, right now, right. Um, and to try all the stuff yeah. and to write way too many things. Mm -hmm. um, and I have a colleague who I love dearly who, who thinks our students publish too much. I want them to send their work out. Yeah. I want them to see what the reception is. And if somebody publishes something that 10 years later they're going to disavow, who cares? Yes. Right. That's growth. I mean, it's a testament. It's a testament to 
this whole human experience, yeah. you know, I think. Yeah, yeah. the messy, right, the yeah. messiness of it. And um, so this thicket thing, right? It's just work. It can be really frustrating. There's always a moment when I think, what was I thinking? Um, This is never going to come around right. But there's also such freedom and pleasure. It's my favorite thing in the whole world. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's so far from digging ditches. It's so far from carrying other people's books right, right? Waiting tables. Tell me this, is your work visual? Like, do you feel visual about your work? I I absolutely do. So I'm going to make you tell me in a minute if you think so. And this is where the irony is with that whole idea of the image, right? Because I used to think, and I was taught, that I had to actually make an explicitly visual image of an explicit thing in Mm -hmm. order for the work to be visual. And I don't think that anymore. Yeah. Uh, I think it's for me, because it's all about perception, right? It's all about the visual and, and also the other senses. But um, I had a student recently email me and say, I really want to talk to you about this idea of the a- abstract space for the image, which I've never seen before. She was reading my new book of poems. And I thought, yay. Yeah, please right? tell me more. Um, well, so do you think that the work is... That your work is visual? Work? It feels visual to me. Well, and it's something that I've been thinking about a lot because I'm interested in medium, like it, for this mm-hmm. podcast as a project. I, I, I think a lot about medium and like what's art, what's not. I'm really interested in the fringes and I'm really interested in the crossover. And increasingly, I feel like every artist is a writer and every every artist is like a visual artist too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... I, I just think ultimately I'm, I'm kind of have a, a theory maybe that ultimately the thing that we all have in common as artists is something to do with observation and something to do with that thicket, like <laughs> pulling something like, which is writing, right? Like at some, you know, esoteric level, like re- reducing something into something is writing, <laughs> like even if you're painting you know, even if you're not writing, even if you're not writing. So even my husband, language. my husband who does visualization would be able to tell you exactly what the percentage is. And I'm going to get it wrong, but some huge percentage, like 60, 70% of our brains is given over to the visual faculty. Yeah. Huge. Um, mm. And it's so dreamy. I love it so, so much. Isn't that wonderful? So here's the other thing that, that those visual centers if you describe something in language, like so much depends upon yeah. a red wheelbarrow glazed with rain water beside the white chickens, that wheelbarrow and the chicken image will actually light up the same visual center in the brain yeah. that would light up if you were actually looking at it. I didn't know that, but I know that. But you know that, <laughs> you know, right? That so feels these are the so things. true. That's in fact I talk in in The Stranger about the um that inner eye, right? Yeah. The retina of the brain that is actually the thing that constructs the yeah. image that we're seeing. So I'm looking at you but I'm not seeing you. I'm seeing right. the image that the that is being generated in this teeny 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 place in the brain that we were right. only able to see I think in the 90s, but we knew it was there. We talk about the inner eye, yeah, right? 
Oh, I love it. So your work, your work feels visual. Do you want to say anything else about, about that? Um, like, do you, like the feeling of being like a visual artist as a writer? Ooh. Um, because I think of myself as being such a thinky, right? Sort of yeah. abstract artist. I don't think about the visuals so much sure. when I'm doing it, except that I so much live on my eyes. Yeah. I mean, I just live that way. And here's... Maybe the ironic thing, all that practice when I was a young poet in making images that I then abandoned, I didn't abandon it. Right, right. It stayed with me. I just learned how to make those images in a way they got that tucked was, in or something. Yeah, yeah, in a way that's totally natural to the way that I experience yeah. the world. So those poems were not natural to the way that I experience the world. But having learned to do that thing with language, yeah. even though I thought that I pushed it away from me, it's still, it's like when I say I want my students to have yeah. all the tools, right? Right. It still is with me. Right. Okay, maybe this is a weird question, but I have been wanting to ask you this. <laughs> I've been wanting to ask everyone who I know who specifically works with language. Um, so I've been having this distinct feeling lately, like, I've always known since I was a child that I'm I'm not really interested in other languages. Like mm. maybe that's just me, but I I am very interested in English. And I almost have this feeling that like learning another language will make me like not know English as well. <laughs> and I love English so much. I love like I love every single thing about it. I love thinking about the way that sentences make like different words kind of mean different things. I love thinking about like the connotation of words and the things that you can bring into a sentence without bringing them into the sentence with the connotation. I love like the physical shape of the word, like, cause I'm thinking also about singing words or saying words. Sometimes I love the way that the actual characters like look in a word. I feel like I'm like thinking about like English and English characters in like such a, like a, such a way and I'm curious, like, in what ways do you think about language, like, in these kinds of oddities? So I'm curious, do you sing opera? No, never. I oh, mean, no. I did in high school, but my deg my degrees are in jazz studies, and, I, and the music that I write is, um, like, alternative pop, mm -hmm. like, just artsy yeah. pop. Yeah. Um, so how do I think of that? I studied French from the time I was six years old until I was in college. Um, and interestingly, I never went to France until I was in my 30s. And so almost all of my knowledge and understanding of French is actually from reading. I wow, read yeah. pretty fluently, but... Uh, it takes me two weeks in France before I can really have a conversation sure. to get. It's different. It's different neural pathways, right? right? Neural structures. Um, but there was a time when I was studying French when um, it suddenly became apparent to me, and I was probably 12 or 13, um, diagramming sentences. I would have dreams about diagramming sentences in French. Yeah. I was learning how to do it in English. Um when I realized that French was actually illuminating English wow. for me. Yeah. Um, and then I, I had Latin and um, just from traveling, I have smatterings of, really smatterings of Spanish and Italian and German. Um, 
And it is true that you can get mixed up. I was in Mexico, and like I said, I, my Spanish is very minimal. But with my parents, and uh, I was trying to have a conversation with the waiter in Spanish, and all of a sudden the whole table burst into laughter, and it was because I just put French, Latin, Spanish, English, Whoops. and maybe <laughs> also Italian into the same sentence. <laughs> So, oopsie, oopsie, <laughs> right? And so there is this sense in which you can... Like fracture. Fracture and sort of lose the distinctiveness. And this, I believe that this is right about how the brain is working and trying, struggling, struggling, yeah. struggling to put together this sentence in a language you don't have very well. So it's just kind of reaching for, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever it can find. But... One of the great things about knowing other languages is the way that they can illuminate English sure. for you. And in particular, so in poetry, poetry loves to make jokes about the it. history of language, right? Yeah. So that if I'm choosing between one word and another word, one of the things that I'm thinking about is what is the history of that word right. and what other words have relationships to that word because of the yeah. history. Um, Even like non-etymologically, I feel like it's also just like, if this word kind of sounds like this other word, you can do a little trick. Like, I love thinking of language that way. It feels like, again, it's like, it's, it's similar to that thicket feeling of like, there, it, it's like you have this um, big pool of things to choose from. And as you're assembling the thing, like, it's so much more than these 10 words. Yeah. It's, it's like a whole it's, scaffolding of things. And again, another thicket and the essay and the stranger, I become um, uh, in defense of distraction, right? One of the things that that essay does is a sort of playful, I'm not going to call it deep, but a very playful dive on the words that have an etymological relationship to distraction, right? And which in the essay turns into a way that I'm distracting myself so that I don't actually have to do the thicket. It's a so, metaphor. It, I yeah. love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I, so, you know, I wouldn't either encourage or, or discourage you. Maybe not a metaphor, just a, a pattern. A, pa know. a pattern, yeah. right? Another way to bring in a, 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 a new lens. lens. Yeah, a new lens, exactly. Um, so I... At like you, I'm totally fascinated with language, mostly with English, but English has this whole, English is like a, the pig pen of languages, right? It has yes. all the other languages sort of in a penumbra, yeah. Latin and Greek, which most of the European languages do, but also German um, French, French, like, so Malay. much. We have we have Malay. Um, I did know, not know that. Would love to know um, more. Some Indian cool. languages, some Chinese. So where it is like this rolling, messy cloud. Oh, I love of it. Language. <laughs> it's so. It's everything. It's it just is. like sometimes I'll write a whole song just to use like a word that I think is like such an interesting word. I'll just think like. Well, I've got to figure out a way to put that in something. Right. And so then, then the thicket is how do you get into that word and how do you get out and of it? And how do I word? make it connect with the rest of my entire concept record? Yeah. Yeah. Which is <laughs> like the game. It's, it's That's my favorite. The thicket within the thicket. Right? The, the multi-layered thicket is where I want to live forever. Yeah. And just be a little thicket witch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
in my own, in just in my brain and in my garden. <laughs> so the, you'll be down here sitting under your <laughs> thicket and I'll be up there sitting under my thicket. I just thicket. love it. And I feel like it's such a difficult thing to explain and a difficult thing for people to understand. I feel like I'm always trying to ask my guests about these kinds of things. And sometimes people are like, oh, totally. And sometimes people look at me like I'm just crazy. But yeah, it's it's amazing. Okay, I want to hit you with this last topic. Okay. So I frequently feel like this same thicket feeling. I feel like I'm getting, I'm, I'm trying to get at a puzzle of like, solving something bigger, like solving my relationships, solving my family, solving like, you know, a culture, a cultural problem. Um, and I, I increasingly kind of believe that what we do as artists, these, these kind of creative endeavors, you know, we're producing books, we're producing albums, we're producing paintings, but you know, like I said before, I think what we're actually doing is like observing, reflecting, um, cohesing what's this word maybe focusing <laughs> sure yeah yeah um and that maybe the maybe the ultimate purpose and certainly this is what i believe at this point in my life is to you know be a be a better member of a human family to understand other humans better to be more empathic um and i i guess i'm curious you know what your thoughts are in terms of you know what being creative or what being an artist means to you as a human or, or means for humans or whether you take your artistry like to and from your humanity with your students, with your husband, um, with your neighbors. I mean, I think that they're all part and parcel of the same thing, but I become a little anxious and also somewhat skeptical, right, about prioritizing or about centering the sort of um, the what I think of as the penumbra. And part of this has to do, I think, with a long... You know, you reach a certain age and artists get knocked off their pillars as human beings, mm. right? And so we've actually seen in quite recent times a whole bunch of artists who you or I or people we know might really have respected and resonated to yeah. their work. And then they are revealed as being execrable human right. beings. And so I think that assuming that because somebody is making good art, sure. that means that they're better members of the human family. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that at all. Is, but I also think that being a better member of the human family, unfortunately, does not ensure good art, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so I don't want to say that I want to separate these things altogether, and it's certainly true, for example, my students know that I, though I recognize Wordsworth to be a great poet, and I do not dispute them at all, that at all, um, I actually don't like his work. Mm. And I think that what I don't like about his work is deeply rooted in what I consider to be a sort of ethical problem sure. with, this whole, with this whole project. So these things are not 
are not separate from me. So I just want to say that to begin with. Okay. And then I also want to, I do want to say that I think that um, even though I remain an introvert and maybe less committed to performing extroversion in spaces where I don't particularly want to do that anymore. You know, I have yeah. less time than I used to have in the literal mortal sense of it, right? Um, I hope that my work also deeply connects me and performs an ethical function. That's not what I'm thinking about when I sit down. Sure. That's right. your secret. <laughs> That's not what. So I'm sure as heck not thinking about that lovely woman's dead husband when I sit down to write that sure. that poem. Um, but I think that the fact that I'm able to say, I'm so glad she was able to use that poem in that way, mm. um, is part of what I get out of the work and yeah. what she gets out of the work. And the fact that I don't need to tell her. Yeah. I think that's more what I mean. Like, like it's for you, like the, like making the art. It's not that it's like, you know, it's for others and like consuming it will make them a more ethical person. I mean, that may be or may not. I would, I would say that that's someone else's, you know, uh, artful journey. And I, I'm a pretty firm believer that, creativity is a muscle exercise both ways. Like right. we exercise creativity in the, in the creating of things and also the, in the consuming of things. Yeah, absolutely. And so I do think that there's some, you know, maybe a kind of generosity in saying now this is done and it's not for me anymore. It's for whoever encounters yeah. it. Right. Yeah. Um, and the, that ability or willingness to sort of let it go into that is maybe an act of generosity. And then maybe the person who comes in and experiences it will have an experience that is transformative or helpful or ethical yeah. for them in some kind of way. I can't control that. But if that happens, I'm, I'm very happy. So with The Stranger I Become, I received so many notes from people uh, who's, who said, this really helped me. Well, actually, my memoir about my grandmother, Look Both Ways, um, I, a whole bunch of women contacted me and said, this was so helpful to me in thinking about my difficult relationship with the women in my I need to read that because I have... I have women problems. Women, women, family, women. You know, it's hard to be a woman. It was even harder. Yeah. Harder then, right? And it's so, so hard. It's such a grief. And I think it's one reason that I try to seek out women who are older than me to interview and to, you know, have um, camaraderie with because I feel, I feel a distinct, like, dearth of, like, uh, female, like, people that I'm head, trying to head toward, you know? And I actually think it's easier to make those connections with the people who didn't raise you yeah, and that you're not raising than it is to, because those connections are, are so complicated and so difficult. But I had a number of women say, your book helped me forgive my mother. Yeah. For uh, my grandmother was a terrible mother, a very difficult person. Um, and, that wasn't my intention at all yeah. when I set out to write that book. But the, knowing that that was a result is for me 
an incredible yeah. gift coming back. Well, I think about it in terms of like when we exercise this creative muscle again in both directions, mm-hmm. what we're doing is we're cultivating like a, we're cultivating a skill of like a paradigm shift. And I feel like that is so essential to being empathic, to understanding another person or, or understanding that you'll never understand another person, which maybe is even more important of a skill. But to me, it feels like I don't know how to be an ethical member of society without working that muscle. Well, and it is the, the muscle of imagination, right? Right. And, um, we're never, ever gonna fully understand another human being. But to put ourselves in the position where we are willing ourselves to be moved from the position that we're taking to a different position, which is totally what art is about, right, is putting yourself first in that position of being able to be moved or to be transformed. And then out of that, creating the vehicle for someone else to do that. I do think that that's an ethical act. I yeah. think so too. That's what my that's what my new my newest record is about. It's called The Hallowed Wide, which is, you know, a sacred space between people, between right. peoples, between generations, um, and something that is hallowed and unknowable and still worth investigating, even despite it being unknowable. But that's definitely a topic that's like a it's it's on my mind in this decade, perhaps. Maybe forever. I guess we'll see. And, you know, good good luck on the um, mother stuff. Yeah. It is so complicated. And and you're quite a bit younger, so I'm probably your mother's age. Yeah. My mom mom passed away when she was 52, but she's 20. uh, Well, my life is a lot easier with her gone. Yeah. It's true. But that's also heartbreaking. It is. Right? I've actually just been, I've just been talking about this with my husband and some other, you know, close loved ones recently that... I feel like I've I've been no contact with my dad for two years, which has been really healing. In some ways, I'm still struggling more than I would like with right. that relationship. But I have just recently kind of been able to find room to re- to remember some nice things about my mom, even just little things like you know just things that she would cook or um, you know just ways that she taught me how to like do makeup, you know, just like Mm -hmm. simple kind of little things, um, that I think before, like all the grief of the trauma was taking up so much space that I couldn't even like touch on those things. So I'm, I'm trying to be kind of open hearted about that, but it is like a, it is like a permanent grief and it's like a, it's weirdly gendered. Like it, it affects like the way that I interact with like all women, I think. (laughs) So I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm puzzling through it, but but yeah. yeah, I think with my mother and also with my grandmother and writing about my grandmother really illuminated this in some way is that it can be hard for the new generation, which I used to be and that now you are, it can be hard for us to understand that as difficult as it is now for women, what it was like for them was... yeah. Really unbelievably unthinkable. hard, uh, yeah. really unthinkable, especially for women who were um, brilliant and 
driven and as both my mother and my grandmother and then also my great-grandmother, right, yeah. all were and then thwarted in so many ways. Well, and I do think, like, I, I do think pretty generously about my mom's narcissism and think about, like how she came by it honestly you know right. like exactly. I, I do feel pretty generous about that you know it's yeah. it is it is yeah I mean what do you do with like what do you do with all that brilliance when you're not kind of uh given an environment to process it healthfully I yeah. don't know yeah exactly what do you do and it begets tantrumy which is like what I think happened with my mom yeah and you know so it's it's possible um, that if she had lived, she would have gotten better. I know. I think but it's also possible she would have gotten worse, right? She Either. did. I do. I say this a lot because this idea of this like hope, like, you know, they say like narcissist, this trick of narcissism is like giving you just enough of nothing that you hope for everything. Yeah. And, uh, she did, she did, the last thing she said to me was that I was difficult to love. So that makes me think that, that makes me think that it would have been an ongoing, but I, I do wonder, you know, I do wonder, like, would she have been capable of a different kind of growth? You know, it's unknowable, but it's also, I also feel relieved that I don't have to keep hoping. Right. And being disappointed. Right. Which is more more likely what what would have happened, <laughs> and instead I can focus on, you know, I say this all the time too. Like when you have someone like that in your life that you're just chasing, like chasing that love, it it uh it takes up so much space, and and then I never had that space to focus on people who were right in front of me, like you know, offering nurture or offering you know whatever. So it's. It's radical acceptance, you know. Radical acceptance, indeed. So this is, uh, I was loved. And that is such a privilege. Yeah. Right? That's a beautiful thing to say. I think it's true. I think it's true. And and in some ways, I also think my situation has left me a better teacher Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, a better spouse, maybe. (laughs) Like, (laughs) my husband, we were, we had a... We were playing these gigs in Montana. My husband plays drums. He works for Texas Instruments. He has a PhD Uh in material science Uh. and builds semiconductors. But he also plays the drums. And occasionally we get to play together. And so we were in the car for like 18 hours together this weekend. Um, And, you know, just talking mostly. And he was saying something about, he was like, you know, you've, you've given us a lot of tools in our marriage to be better communicators. And, and I feel really proud of that, you know, but yeah. I think that's because like, I kind of had no, I could have either just succumbed to like a mental illness or, right. you know, problem solved. And I'm sure I'm right. continuing to problem well, solve. But. You, there was your thicket, right. And you addressed the thicket. Some of it. Yeah. yeah some of <laughs> so it. Well, then, these are remember. sort of lifelong. Yeah. These are lifelong. I mean, if anything, um, I get confused if people don't love me. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yes. Well, I feel that way too. Yeah. Yeah, I also feel confused if people don't love me. I feel confused that my mother didn't love me. You know, yeah. like it's a, it's a lifelong confusion. Yeah. Um, but I think that's just, that's also wholehearted. And that's just like this weird mystery. Like, you know, feeling distinctly lovable and distinctly unloved. It's yeah. just, you know, what? But thank God that human. you felt lovable. 
Yeah, right. I mean, so without that, (laughs) yeah, but without that, right, where you would be, where would you be if you felt unloved and unlovable? Well, bringing it all back around, I think that was the artist, you know, like, I think the thing that I felt lovable about as a child that felt immovable was that creativity. Like that felt so abundant and so beautiful to me. And it was so clear to me when so very little else was clear that, you know, there was like a core of, of something, but I think it was art. I mean, I think it was creativity, which is why it's like this, I'm obsessed with it. (laughs) You know, like this question of like, what do we do with it? Where does it come from? Is it essential? How can we use it? How can we, um, I guess. So with that in mind, like, do you have any final thoughts for like artists, for creatives, you know, or, or anything, anything that's left on your mind? Wow. We've talked about so much, Isn't right? Great. I love it. Um, but <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, what I would just go back to is that question of the sense of identity, yeah. um, and work, right. And that the idea, identity get comes with and is earned by the work that you are people would argue with me about this but you are what you do yeah um right I think that's true I mean you are what you you what you care about is how you spend your time yeah and I'm not uh you know I've mentioned before that I'm not a religious person although um I get a tremendous solace and spiritual boost um, from the world and the universe as they are, and also from art, from human creativity that, um, you know, I talk about being transformed by the religious experiences of my youth, not because uh, even then I believed in that particular God, but because I absolutely believed in the beauty of that liturgy and the music and the art that I was being exposed to. Um, So I'm also sort of suspicious of this idea that um, we have a self that is our material self and a self that is somehow detachable Mm -hmm. from that. And I've infuriated my students before by saying, you know, we're just meat, um, cognitive processes, right? All of that kind of stuff give us the feeling of a soul and the opportunity for the sense of transcendence of the self. And that's what we accomplish when we have made our art and done it successfully, both for our own transcendence and for the potential expression and transcendence of other people. Amen. I can't imagine a better ending. That's be just beautiful. I love it so much. Is there anything else you want to say? Mm, no. I always ask everybody at the end on this day, what's your dream collaboration? And you're, you're, you don't collaborate, I think very much. So you can, you can bend this question however you want. So actually, in fact, oh, you? In fact I you have do. like a 30-year collaboration ah. with the visual artist Maureen O'Hara-York, which is very sort of designed around our the fact that we're both introverts, right? Yeah. Um, and that we, we both, we go into our study and our studio and we work and work and work and work and then six months later we come out kind of blinking holding a couple of canvases or a sheaf of pumps and then we trade and then we 
have wine, and then we go back, right? Yeah. And so yeah. I'm not illustrating her paintings, and she's not painting to my poems, but it's like this 30-year conversation. So oh. there's that. And then I did a big collaboration um, for Earth Day in, I think it was 2020. It was supposed to be 2020, and then you know what yeah, happened. Yeah. 2021 with composers and visual oh, artists and media. musicians. Um, email me and I'll send you the link because okay. it's all up online. I'd love to um, see it. And also um, scientists, cool. right? So that was part of this, the whole, apparently I'm now an eco-poet. Yes. Um, part, of, part of that thing. <laughs> and I've had a lot of poems set by composers, which is not exactly like collaborating, it but it is like I collaborating. I think so. That's why I'm saying I think it's like a bendable question. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, any 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 artists or or institutions or that you would love to collaborate with? Oh, that I would love to collaborate. Yeah, with. what's a dream collaboration? I mean, it's funny because I think of myself as being such an introvert, but I'm collaborating all the time. But I don't have an ambition to collaborate. Collaborations just appear. So that's my dream is to yeah. continue to have to be open. The th- to be open and to have the thing come when it comes. Is and there then, any? anyone who's inspiring you lately? Well, um, Sappho, but she's dead. That's okay. (laughs) Well, I always tell people you can summon people from the grave. You can build a whole, um, you can build a whole team. I was interviewing a a woman who is a pet photographer and we joked about her having a collaboration with like a pack of wolves, you know, so it can be, it can be a very wishy-washy question. Right. Maybe you collaborate with those coyotes in your neighborhood that don't howl. I do collaborate. (laughs) I collaborate with the howling ones too. I mean, I feel like I collaborate with, in a way with whatever. I mean, I'm just so interested in looking observing, perceiving, processing, that kind of whatever, which is not to say that I don't seek things out. I can't wait to be back in Australia. I can't wait to be back in Paris. Um, Friendship, I think of as a form of collaboration, right? Absolutely. Well, it's that same thing we were talking about before of like uh, everything bleeding into itself. Um, I think that's my goal. Like that's my kind of like, that's my transcendent goal is to feel like every interaction is artful, you know, like it's just art all day long. Whether you know it in the moment, right. Or not. So this conversation will absolutely come back to me and get, you know, it becomes part of that fabric. So here's another maybe hopeful thing about getting older. And that is that, um, I, what I know now that my work will constantly change the next problem or project will present itself that I don't have to seek it the world provides that's a beautiful thought and I really appreciate it and I I I receive it (laughs) thank you okay and finally tell everyone where to find your work oh so I strongly recommend that they immediately hop onto the King's English Bookstore um, website and uh, not only or walk into their beautiful little store if if you're doing that these days um, wonderful fantastic people there great books they will send you right to the poetry section if you ask they have it used to be a cat but now they have a bird Um, which I don't know if you know that we have a parrot at home. I didn't, but parrots are so romantic. They are, and they're so, actually, they're less romantic than you think 
because well, I just mean because they're so smart. They're so smart, and they're just full and of they're mischief. Old. Yeah, they can get old. So we lost uh, my husband's macaw, who he had had for forty-two oh my years, and then we waited a year, and then we got this little Henry, this little Senegal yeah. parrot. Who, I'm mean, romantic, assuming there's tons of mess and mischief. Yes, like, tons of mess of it, and it, mischief. I mean, a parrot is like a a non-human person. Yeah. So he's now, he's in the middle of his adolescence, which means he's a holy terror, but also that he's learning to talk. So he practices his words and he, he can say, hi, sweetie. And Cute. what you doing, Henry and little man. So all these things that that's a collaboration too. The, a collaboration. So all these things that we've been teaching him without knowing yeah. right, that we were teaching him are coming back. I love it. That's, I feel like people who have birds and have birds in like an ethical way are that it tells you a lot about this person i think i have a I have like a deep respect for for people who deeply respect birds <laughs> um so king's english has a parrot oh, they a have bird? a parrot now that's that's how we got there they have yeah. a parrot now <laughs> they have a fantastic poetry section oh. they'll also have a both of the nonfiction book and books, and I've published okay. a couple of novels many, many years ago, and I'm sure they'll have those as well. Well, that's amazing, Catherine. I have been waiting to interview you with such a full heart for so long, and I have also been waiting with a full heart. Though uh, you probably didn't know it since you. I was that's since so I was nice. anxious. But. That's so nice. Thank you so much for being here. It's such a gift to me. I appreciate it so much. Um, it's a gift to me too. And I should say that after your, our first contact, I went and listened to your interview with Joel yeah, Long, which I, I think had just come out yeah. that minute. It was such a wonderful conversation. Thank and you. I just immediately became a fan. Oh, thank you so that. much. Thank you. That means so much to me. Well, thank you. This is a beautiful Wednesday morning. I appreciate it so much. It's my pleasure. And I hope we cross paths again. I demand it. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our theme song is As You Are from My Album Masks with artwork and merch designs by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, you can reach me through my website, emilymerrellmusic.com. That's E-M-I-L-Y-M-E-R-R-E-L-L music.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.